I've got to stop being a dick about. Well, I'm not being a dick. I guess. First of all, I stop cursing. Okay, like I just I won't even notice I'm doing it half the time. Like I was just on a meeting and it was fine. The guy like wouldn't have cared. It wasn't like my boss or anything. It was a coworker. But I said something. I was like, "What the hell?" Right. We all swear a lot at my office, but I think I'm one of the worst, and I kind of strive to be more in the middle. I don't need to be cursing all the time. This is why they don't want teenagers to do it, I think, because you do it a lot as a teenager because you're like, this is cool. It adds inflection to how I'm feeling. But then it becomes a really horrible habit as you age. Well, not age, but like, you know, you just never drop the habit. So then suddenly you're like cursing left and right. And it's like, I don't need to be doing this. I'm a lady now. Sometimes I listen back to the podcast and I'm like, (sighs) it's almost a crutch. Yeah. It's funny to be like. Jesus Christ. And it's like, all right, uh, turn it down. Fucking Stabler. I know there was one episode. I don't remember which one it was. Thank God. But I personally, I was like Paige. Like to myself, I was like, <laughs> ma'am, you need to like, fi- like strengthen your vocabulary. <laughs> and there's a lot to swear about in this show. So you need to, you got to choose wisely. Like this episode, I do. <laughs> I've got some Fs peppered in. Wild. Now, again, hi, everybody. Hey. Hey, hey! Hi! There. Oh my God! Didn't see you there. Sorry. Didn't see you there. We're just talking about our desire to do better moving <laughs> forward. Moving forward. If you like the swears, smash the five star button. If you don't like the swears, smash. Write a nice review. Yeah. And smash the five star. The five star button. <laughs> Whatever you do. Although I think it would be kind of fun. There was like I was listening to um another podcast they were talking about how someone from Vanderbilt Rules when she started her podcast a bunch of people who just hated her for no reason from the show like gave it one star reviews and I'm like that's so fucked up but also it's like it's sort of like when you see a restaurant has a lot of bad reviews part of you kind of wants to be like well how bad is it like should I go that's kind of like the idol on HBO Max right now yeah fuck you I'm not calling it Max oh there's my first f word um everyone's like wow this is like the weekend is so terrible in the show. So I'm kind of like, and they're like, and the sex scenes are weird and graphic. I'm like, ooh, um, should I go find out what's up? I kind of want to watch <laughs> it now. Yeah. And, right? When you hear something's really bad, you're like, but how bad can it possibly be? I mean, the whole premise of that show, start to finish, sounded like it was going not even just bad. Like, I didn't have faith in Lily Rose Depp. I don't like her because she's. Well, she just is one of those Nepo babies who's like, I've worked really hard to get where I am. Wrong. No, you fucking haven't. I, yeah, she was one of those ones that came out. The Nepo baby thing was so funny because you saw there was like a good portion just not saying anything. They're like, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to say anything. There was a good portion going, yeah, for sure. Totally. That makes sense. And then there was a huge portion going, <coughs> why is this a problem? And she was one of those. She was like, I don't get it. If someone's, well, I'm giving her a Valley Girl accent. It's but I think she talks. I don't know. She probably talks more like this. You sound like the babysitter on Bob's Burgers. <laughs> <laughs> I brought this nail puzzle for us to do. <laughs> and then Tina's like competing with her. She's like, uh, Jen, do you think you just want to leave maybe? Why wouldn't they? Oh, I forget. There is a reason they don't let Tina babysit. I forget what she did, though. It's like Tina. I think also it's just that it's Tina, too. And she's just like woefully irresponsible <laughs> yeah she's just inept i know she's funny but the episode where she crashes the car actually makes me physically rage because she's like uh and he's like hit the brake hit the brake tina and they're poor they can't afford to have their car break and tina's just like uh that actually made me angry 
Like, I don't think I'd ever forgive her for being that stupid. <laughs> no. My own child, I'd be like, we were in a huge parking lot. You needed to do one thing, which was move your foot an inch to hit the brake, and you just sat there and groaned. I'd be like, you never get to do anything again. No, and you're right. Like, being that it is your own child that is part of you, you it's like there's a different level of shame. You're like, wow, oh this God. came out of me as women who would be giving birth. Yes. Not Bob. Not Bob. <laughs> he would be an annoying pregnant lady you, or a pregnant person. Like, we know that to be a fact. Oh, yeah. I don't think a single man could handle being pregnant. Men are just too weak. This is why I believe intelligent design, because God said to himself, after observing what was going on for a couple of years, he was like, you know, I thought about reworking the man to make them like impregnatable. But after seeing how they handle a mild cold, no. No, they can't do it. Nothing would get done. Give it to the women. But then, you know, that begs the question, God, why didn't you change a couple of other things? I won't question God. There's no point in doing that. No, not on this podcast. That's my own podcast where it's called Britney Questions God. (laughs) (laughs) It's just me screaming, why, for an hour. Oh, my God. Imagine if I had that podcast and it had more listeners than this one. Like, I don't know what it is, but I have at least 50 listeners and they all smash that five star button. Why? Why? (laughs) That was actually me a lot during this episode. Why? Even more frustrating is that this episode is based on a true story. Everyone, today we're going to be discussing... Well, actually, wait. I need to make a bigger deal about this. Oh, my God. We are done with SVU Season 1. This is our last episode. We are. Yes. We did it. 22 effing episodes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm saving it because it's going to get... Spicy real soon. I'm already laughing because there's some things. I think they had to give us, I think, once again, I think they were like, listen, this is really tough subject matter and based on a true story. So we have to pepper in some. Let's keep it light, guys. Keep it light. And they kept it li- They kept it light. <laughs> they didn't mean they to. Did. So the episode is called, well, it's episode 22, Slaves. Original air date, May 19th, 2000. Directed by Ted Kotcheff. Uh famed director of Weekend at Bernie's. Which I actually wish I had looked into that. That's amazing because our famous, famous, famous guest star of this episode. Well, there's actually two randomly. The more famous one is Andrew McCarthy, legendary 80s hottie who was in Weekend at Bernie's starring role. May I go on? Pretty in pink. St. Elmo's Fire. Mannequin. Kiss Kim Cattrall. That's pretty fucking legendary. Up oh, there it is again. <laughs> I'm gonna start like swear jar every time. My swear jar. Boop. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing we don't censor this podcast, or else that would be a very annoying. Oh my god, you'd be you would have a week, and it would just be mine. You'd be like, Brittany, could you just like try not to? And I'd be like, and I never want to have to ask anyone to stop swearing. So that's why no. we're not gonna censor this podcast. We're no. just gonna let we're just gonna learn from our mistakes. We're gonna let learn. our E flag fly. Get that explicit reading. 
Which makes it sound a lot sexier than it is. I thought that too. And it kind of is like a hilarious contrast between like our like the picture of our podcast, which is like pink and we're sipping wine and we're obviously beautiful girls. So you're like, wow, they're reviewing SVU. That seems strange. These sweet, delicate baby angels. And then you log on. You're like explicit. Ooh. (laughs) These sweet, delicate baby angels might be like saying some sexy things. No, actually, we're not. We're just swearing. Swearing, doing bad accents, fucking, you know. Well, there. I've got one in the first scene. I'm already, I'm like, what? Oh, yeah, duh. I'm like, why can't I remember (laughs) what we I was like starstruck by Andrew. How crazy did you see the post I made from our dual account of young Cragen? Yes. He only had a little bit more hair. Oh. It was like a different color, too, that I did not like. I was like, ooh, I don't know about brunette young Kragen. Dude, he yells 90% of this episode. He comes in! Screaming. Oh, I was going to say, I, I forgot to write down the people, but I knew that you would have it. So I was like, oh, good. Brittany will have that. <laughs> oh, of course I do. <laughs> Brittany will have that note. I also have a bunch of sound bites I want to pull for this episode. Uh, oh, yeah. Munch's Clockwork Orange rant. Had my ass in a sling over that one. Oh, my God. <laughs> Should we, so just get, should we just get into it? I keep Let's like teasing things. Oh my God. Uh, all right. Well, dun dun. Opening scene. We are at the station. Cragen walks in yelling. He goes, all right, people, listen up. So Cragen tells the gang that the city has decided there should be a biannual psych evaluation for police officers. And they have decided to select one of the most high stress units, SVU, to be the guinea pig. So he starts handing out forms for everyone to fill out and tells them that they will receive appointment times. Munch clearly is pissed and he's like, what's the angle? And Stabler kind of agrees. He's like, can we flunk this exam? Like, what's going to happen to us? And Cragen has no idea. So the gang's looking anxious and they're all looking at each other. And Olivia's like, well, who's going to go first? And Cragen's like, me, the blind leading the blind. Everyone is very dramatic about this stuff. This episode should be called These Barbies Are Freaking Are the Losing fuck. It. They are losing Everett. This episode is peak drama from top to bottom. Like everyone involved. They're getting a touch of therapy and they're all like, what? 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 Oh my God. And it's like, listen, you guys all need a lot of therapy and you're getting a, t- a kiss a <laughs> of therapy. <laughs> Bitch kiss of therapy. Uh, <laughs> and it truly is the blind leading the blind. My God. Munchies and Craig and leave, leaving Benson and Stabler. And he's like, oh, can you believe this? And Olivia actually is kind of being level-headed here. She's like, well, maybe it's a good thing. Shrinks get shrunk. Maybe we could use it. Yes. Yes, you could. You could all use it. Everyone could use it, but especially you. And I like how they're like the, the concept, because the original concept is cops are under a lot of stress. SVU Lots and lots of stress. So they were like, yeah, they thought we would they would test it out on our most high stress unit. And they're like, oh, my God, the conspiracy. And I'm like, what? What's their angle? And it's like they're just trying to make sure you guys aren't going to fuck up and hurt the public. So Olivia notices an older gentleman by the entrance to the unit. He looks a little lost. He's unsure. She's like, can I help you? So he tells her an accent in English. He's like, I was told I could report sex crime here. So Olivia invites him in to take a seat, and he tells them he owns a fruit stand. Out of nowhere, two boys run up, take some bananas, and run off. And Olivia and Stabler are like, (laughs) that sounds more like a robbery. And he's like, no, no. They didn't even give him, like, a second. I know. He, like, didn't even get to, like, inhale to say his next sentence. They're like, (laughs) 
uh, robberies down the hall. The inflection in his voice did not indicate he was finishing his story. And they just plum. They were like. <coughs> so he says when he's angry, he curses in his native tongue, which is Romanian. And hearing this, a woman grabs him and asks him to help her. And she's also speaking Romanian. She says there's a man. And she is trapped in a situation she cannot escape from. There is abuse. He says this doesn't translate to English very well, but that's the gist of what she is saying. And Olivia's like, is the abuse physical or sexual? He thinks both. Stabler asks for the woman's name and the fruit vendor doesn't know. He also doesn't know where she lives. And Benson and Stabler are just kind of like, <sighs> Craig, it's going to be really mad about this. going to be so pissed. But what the vendor does have is a scrap of paper that he pulls from his pocket, and he said that the woman, the woman gave it to him. The paper has a name written on it, and it's Constanta Condrescu. The woman said to the vendor, tell her she was right, I need help, and then she took off. So Stabler's like, all right, uh, what time did this happen? And the vendor pauses and looks a little guilty, and he's like, uh, three days ago? And B and S look at each other like, ugh. <sighs> Craig is really not going to like this. He doesn't. No. Dun, dun. He's so mad about this. So mad about that. So mad about this. Come back from the credits where they're showing us the creepy tipped over carriage and the doll. So the fruit vendor is now working with a sketch artist for a composite of this girl. Craig is suspicious as usual. He always comes in, like Brittany said, he has to do this thing where he acts like it's not really a crime. He's like, uh, we don't have any evidence aside from a woman says she's in trouble. Now, oftentimes I'm like, oh, he's playing devil's advocate. But this time he's just kind of like has an air of defeat like they haven't even started already. He's like, oh. Really? I know. I thought that too. Um, so he says, so some girl is being abused by some guy somewhere in Manhattan. And I was like, yeah, that's how a lot of life and crime works, Cregan. Things are happening all over the place, <laughs> whether we like it or not. So he asks if the vendor seems suspicious. And Stabler says that he doesn't. He's just like, normal fruit vendor. Benson says the guy didn't even actually want to get involved, basically. Um, but his wife, he made like an offhand comment to his wife about what happened. And the wife like was hounding him until he came forward with the information but so olivia's saying this and she's talking like really fast all of a sudden it's like it's like she had like five shots right to her blood she's like he only came in because wife wouldn't shut up about it and he let it slip one night and then she kept hounding him until he did her delivery of this episode is something else i know she's like Grr. um craigan asks <laughs> how they know that this girl is on the up and up like how they know she's not lying and benson says thousands of women are abused every day by their lesser halves they never say a word about it we at least have to check it out some bunch adds, what if Woodward and Bernstein had shoved off deep throat as some prank phone call or something? I just want to push him out of the frame. Like, shut up. <laughs> We're just going to go investigate this abused girl, okay? <laughs> we don't need everyone circling the bullpen, just airing their grievances and making it about <laughs> fucking conspiracies. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this, Grandpa. <laughs> Twenty-two episodes. I'm sick of everyone's shit. <laughs> I'm literally crying. I can't. So Cragen responds, "Well, prank or not, it's three days cold now. God, I wish people would act like this was nothing." How do any of these cases get solved? He never wants to investigate crimes at first. Ugh, dun 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 dun. We are at the apartment of Constanta Condrescu. She's an older woman, and she's looking at the sketch BNS brought in, and she's like, sorry, I don't recognize her. 
She too has a Romanian accent, but I'm going to leave her alone. So Stabler comments that Constanta Condrescu is not a very common name. So what are the odds that this girl pulled that name out of thin air? Seriously. Constanta gets up to pour some tea and she admits the girl is her niece. Like she gives it up like really easily. Her face, she's so like cold and emotionless. She's kind of like, all right, she's my niece. They were like, oh, well, we think she is. And she's like, okay, you got me. Yes, she is. So, But she says they aren't close. So Olivia says gently, but with a tad of snark, she's like, are you close? She says this nicely, but it's a snarky thing to say. She goes, are you close enough to know her name? And her name is Elena Kondrescu. So Stabler asks why she lied about knowing her. And she's like, well, where I come from, the less you tell the police, the better. Fair. Fair. So Olivia does one of her nonsense sentences and says, well, (laughs) where you're from, she's not in trouble, but she may be in trouble here. Yeah. Girl, she's in trouble. If she's in trouble, she's in trouble everywhere. So Olivia picks up a picture from a side table and asks if this is Elena. It's of a young, pretty brunette girl. So Constanta admits it's her and tells Olivia she can take it. So Stabler's like, you must know where or who she's with. And Constanta tells him she hasn't seen her in three years since she first came here. And she came on a student visa for NYU. And then she starts getting cagey and she's like, yeah, I got to leave for my shift soon. So Olivia gives her her card and is like, call us if you think of anything else, a.k.a. anything fucking helpful. So outside the apartment, Olivia tells Elliot they should have pressed her harder. She's definitely holding something back. And Stabler gets on the phone and asks for a database search of an Elena Kondrescu. Olivia says she'll put Munch on the NYU lead. Done, done. So another quick scene. Um, Munch and Jeffries are there and they're talking to the registrar lady about Elena's enrollment at NYU. And for no reason... They casted Kelly Bishop, a.k.a. Mrs. Gilmore, Lorelai's bitch mom from the Gilmore Girls. (laughs) I was like, that's kind of a big actress for this nothing role. Yeah. And she also, here's another, it's kind of like a six degrees of separation thing. She played Baby's mom in Dirty Dancing. So she was like married to Jerry Orbach in that movie because he was the one who put Baby in a corner. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of weird six degrees of separation things here. She's just in it. I mean, this is right before Gilmore Girls started. So maybe this that was it was like before her. Second... Like a lull in her career. Yeah. Mrs. Gilmore says that Elena never showed up for her orientation or the first day of classes or any time after that. And so Munch is like, why? Like, did you write down why? Is there a reason why? And the lady's like, no. She And then she also for no reason goes, look at all of these files. And she takes them to a hallway. There's just like people with files. I would have been like, yeah, I don't care. Go go find it for me. Unhelpful as usual. Never forget the dean of the Tisch School of Arts member when in during the pandemic, students were like, hey, we would like our tuition back for this year because we don't have access to our professors or the campus or any of the equipment we need to make films. And then she sent an email saying basically respectfully no and attached a video of her performing an interpretive dance to losing my religion yes dun dun oh god we are in the nice interrogation room and it's time for the psych evaluations and we have audrey jackson back with us dr audrey jackson so Cragen's in there he's up first as he said blind leading the blind and boy does he ever they sit down and dr jackson begins to ask him about how he handles the stress of the job basically how he unwinds what he does for fun. Very innocuous question. And he scoffs a golf a little. And she asks what the handicap is. She's like, oh, what's your handicap? And he's like, I don't know. 
And he like throws out numbers. I don't know what golf handicaps are. So she goes, anything else? And she names a couple of just mundane fun activities like walking, jogging, racquetball. He's like, nope. And she's like, come on, Don, see the worst crimes out there. How do you handle the stress? So then Cragen snaps and he's like, this is ridiculous. Why don't you just come right out and ask me? And she's like, ask you? And he's like, the question you've been tap dancing around, do I get the urge to drink? And he gets up and he starts pacing. You want to know about my alcoholism? She's like, do you want to talk about it? And he's like, no, but I will. And then the music, cue the music, dramatic music comes on. And so basically... I thought about writing down his entire speech, but it, what it comes down to is he thinks about drinking every day because of all the terrible things he sees at work, and he knows that drinking will make these ruminating thoughts in his mind go away. They get in my head, and I know if I go inside a bottle, they will stop. So Jackson very delicately goes, will you? And Craigan goes, ask me tomorrow, and he storms out. So then Audrey just sits there like, okay, uh, and she starts writing on her, her pad. So a couple of things here. How would they know about his alcoholism? Because uh, he talks about it all the time. Thank you. I was going to say, because unless there was a drunk incident at work, like on the job at the office, a la Sonia, that one very tragic mm, ADA they gave oh us. no. That was so bad. Showed up to work drunk. It was so weird. She and put a lawyer court. on someone's case. And then didn't like a nip fall out of her pants or something. <laughs> so heavy handed. Oh, God. God, that was awful. Or, yeah, be hungover at work, be irritable, like, to the point where people notice it. They would not know about this. So I feel like she really was just, by the way, she starts out asking all of them what they do for fun, basically, except for maybe much. She's just like, hey, I'm going to take it easy. Let's start this out light. Like, what do you do for fun? And Craigan's like, for fun? Why don't you ask me about my drinking problem? And she's like, <laughs> do you want to talk about it? And he's like, no. She's like, you brought it up. Maybe this was part of Law and Order proper. Maybe there was an episode where he showed up to the courthouse like shit faced and like I'm down and I think this is fucking stupid. Yeah, the there was that dead body walking off to Donald. What are you talking One about? One time I woke up in Mexico. One time seventies I woke up in Tijuana. Started out in Lake City, ended up in Tijuana, which makes no sense. But I'm Carmen San Diego, and this was before <laughs> the internet. <laughs> Then he just pees his pants. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's not unreasonable for them to be like, yeah, you have a really stressful job where you like deal with horrendous crimes perpetrated against like very vulnerable victims. Like, how do you handle the stress? And they're like, oh, this is so invasive. Wow. Ugh. Ugh. Stop asking me about my childhood trauma. And it's like, I didn't. I asked you what you do to unwind. I'm like, I horseback ride. But what you really want to know is about when I started drinking. Now, I'm like, Dr. Jackson must be a great therapist because she just sits down, says two things, and people like snap on her. Seriously, they like trauma dump, but like they like don't want to, but they do. And then they blame her. And she's just like, look. And the whole time she's like, damn, I'm good. But also, Jesus Christ. Harding, I, I just think it's a weird way for him to behave during a psych evaluation for work. Yes. And you are the captain. You are supposed to, I don't know, set an example for all your... Uh, I mean, you know I love me some Don Kraken, but this whole season, I'm kind of like, maybe set a better example for your detectives. He could have been like, you know what? I'm not really sure about this thing, but I'm going to go first. I'm going to make... It's going to be okay. So he's like, I don't know. I guess it's the blind leading the blind. I'm going to go in. I'm going to make a huge stink about my alcoholism and then yell at her and then I'm going to leave. Donald. I just realized something. 
Um, I was asked this question too when I went speed dating six years ago. Oh, what do you do for fun? I well, I I thought about it for a second. I was like, well, technically, I like to um go out and eat and drink and sit at bars and look pretty. And it was a very weird realization. And so maybe that's why Cragen's a little cranky because he realizes he actually doesn't have any hobbies. And drinking was the hobby. He's like, oh crap, damn it. It takes a special kind of scumbag, a la myself, to understand I'm a scumbag, but it's just who I am, and I'm not going to yell at anybody about it. I'm not going to scream at this lady doing her job that she was told to do. Yeah, it's not her fault that you happen to know where Shad's Cabaret is without having, but <laughs> you can smell an ashtray and be like, oh, that's on 45th and 6th. Not Shad's Cabaret. Oh my god, Shad. Oh my god, Dawn. Dun dun. So now we're in... I'm saying the park. It looks like, is that near Central Park? That looks like the stairs we went to one time. I'm so glad you asked, Brittany, because I think it is the stairs we went to that one time. Um, I was thinking that. I'm like, I think that's the stairs that we went to when we asked those girls to take a picture of us. And she, they didn't do a great job. They did not. Mm. You can't trust anybody, really. I mean, they looked like they would know. I said specifically before we approached them, I was like, they look young and like they'll know how to take a picture. I always choose girls in their early 20s to take pictures. Oh, remember at your bachelorette? Now, granted, we were on a roof, so I think everybody was drunk on that roof. But like, we wanted a big group shot, and that one woman was like, "Oh, I'll do it. I'm so good at taking pictures." And she took like eighty billion, and they were so bad. And they were all terrible. <laughs> they were all horrible. And I was like, "Wow, the lo- I want that confidence. Where is my delusional confidence?" Ladies, do better. Do better. But yes, we are in Central Park in the '70s area, I presume. So Benson and Stabler are showing Elena's photo around to see if anyone recognizes her. And there is a terrifying clown making balloon animals and screaming for the children. <laughs> Stabler. It's such a half-assed outfit, too. Like, he's really passionate about his job. But he, like, put on a hat and, like, face makeup. A nose. And he's like, I'm a, I'm a clown. And his hair arms are so hairy. Ugh. So he's making balloon animals for the children. And Stabler approaches him and shows him a picture. Uh, this guy went to the Don Cragen School of Talking because he's like, yeah, I see here, here all the time. Uh, this guy's all over the place. He's one of those people being interviewed who just moves around. He's just like, oh, and they're like following him. They're like, hey, you have something really important to tell me. And he's like, da, 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 da. he's like rat tat tat. And he's like walking over to people speaking about that. Ta, ta, who wants the poodle? Like in the middle of them ask. It's like crazy how he's able to cover so much ground. <laughs> Seriously. He's like, yeah, I made her a green ladybug. Had her pegged as a pink poodle. Go figure. He is buzzing around this area. Just so, roaming. He's positively roaming. roaming. Hey, sweetheart, want a poodle? Yeah, I've seen her around here. Hey, you over there, you look like a poodle person. You're a giraffe. What a world. I'm like, what is... Jesus, did you do some cocaine, buddy? He loves making the poodles. So long story short, he says he has definitely seen her. She has dropped some weight since the picture was taken. This is important for later. Red flag, yeah. And he has seen her with a little girl who's maybe about eight or nine. And Olivia's like, well, she's only 21. She can't have a child that old. Uh, I know. It'd be a really bad situation, but it's possible. She like pulls him aside. She like goes, sir. This woman is 21 years old. She could not possibly have a child that old. So he's like, nah, nah, the child's American. You're in the heart of Nanny Central. And then he says he last saw her yesterday. So they've seen her recently. And they do this thing where they're like, huh? and I'm like, isn't that good? You wanted to find her. They're like shocked. Because we go back to the station and Craig is like, yesterday? I, I, I said, I, don't, I wrote in my notes, I don't know why that's surprising in particular. And 
then this is so funny because they have to recount what a clown said to them. They're like, yeah, the clown said she seems serene, not stressed. Kraken is marching around pissed. I think he's still pissed from his his little tete-a-tete with Dr. Jackson. He should be. He completely showed his ass and talked about his alcoholism when literally no one asked. So Kragen is marching around the office, ranting and raving. He's like, my best detectives were out all day on this wild goose chase. I want Elena in this office explaining herself. Meanwhile, Stabler's on the phone. He's like, uh, there was a dump job by the Hudson. Olivia's card was in the victim's pocket. Dun, dun. I know. And she kind of looks like she's sort of like, she doesn't look at the camera, but she sort of looks at the camera and is like, got this look on her face like, not again. And this is beginning... Well, I guess we began back in Stalked, but this marks one of the beginnings of a long line of victims, of of Olivia having items of victims or victims having items of hers. Olivia, they had your pen in her pocket. And (laughs) and she's like, oh, my God, that woman that I met like five years ago. Meanwhile, we know she's running around town throwing case files at people. She's (laughs) giving people shit. Maybe that's why she looked looked scared. She was like, oh, no, was that one of the people I assaulted (laughs) with a case file? You are just like this mother who drowned her child in a bathtub. It's women like you. It's women like you. She throws it too hard. It hits the woman in the head. Then she falls into the Hudson River. And she's like, shit. Olivia's like, fuck it. I got to get out of here. That's the thing that happens because they find out. Dun, dun. So Benson Stabler arrive and CSU is at the location where the body was found. So basically it was next to the river but it wasn't in the river someone dumped it over like the side of the road basically like over a rail they hefted it over a railing as olivia said i thought that was a funny word hefted hefted so the csu lady cop that's there says that a fisherman found it he was about to fish off the pier uh and he she said thought he found a nice present for the wife because it's an expensive rug that the body was rolled in but it I don't was care how expensive any piece of any piece of furniture that has a, like upholstery or fabric. You don't bring that in your apartment because it has bed bugs. Yeah, it was in someone else's home at one point, and then it was outside for a period of time. And you were like, "Oh, I'll bring it home to my wife." Bad. Are you also fishing for your meal in the Hudson River? This poor That's wife. Disgusting. Go too. investigate that household after this. They're talking about the victim, um, talking about the dump job. And so when we finally get to the body, uh, we see that it's actually Constanta Cadrescu. Uh, And I said to myself, thank God I don't do things like fish or jog or walk a dog anywhere because you run the risk of finding bodies. I know. Dun, dun. M.E. Lance Reddick is back. Um, I think his name is M.E. Taylor, but it's Lance Reddick and he... He's only here for two seconds, so I'll just call him by his Christian name. We're sisters, because I wrote Emmy Reddick's office in my notes, and I was like, I'm not changing it. So he tells BNS something stopped Constanta's heart instantaneously, but he needs the toxicology report to know what. But he estimates time of death between 4 and 6 p.m., and Stabler notes to Benson that they left at 4. So basically, whatever happened, happened right after they left. Oh, it's so frustrating. So Reddick continues, it had to have been something injected into the bloodstream. However, he cannot find a puncture wound. They kind of go around like suggesting all these places and he's like, check there, check there, between the toes, between your, your fingers. I don't know. He said genitals too, which was concerning. Oh, disco. Don't, can, don't, don't inject things, but don't. Do don't inject there. it into your labes or anything like that. Ooh, Ooh. Ooh. I just clenched. Ooh, I just shivered. I'm going to shiver again because Olivia suggests under the tongue. Any checks? And sure enough, 
Dun dun, we're back at the station and Craig and wonders aloud how the killer could have injected the Vic under the tongue without any signs of struggle. He is so, 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 so mad. Oh, that this is turning out to be a real thing. Yeah, he's mad that he was, exactly, I wrote he's mad that he was wrong and this is now a big deal, literally in my notes. (laughs) Now there's a murder and now we have to investigate it. He was hoping that he could just like shame a fucking 21 year old girl or something about running around like making shit up. And now we have a dead body. Stabler suggests she was sedated. Munch is called Interpol and has found out that Elena's father, I think, was murdered back in Romania. Yeah, her father, so um, Constanta's brother, was murdered in 1996 during the, it was like the Kochescu regime. I said that wrong. He thinks this is a conspiracy. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I didn't write that down because Munch keeps doubling down and being like, whatever happened to these women started in Romania. All roads lead to Romania. All roads lead to Romania. They don't. They do not. We're never going to mention that again. And Cragen says, why don't we start in Murray Hill? Dun, dun. Now we're at Constanta's apartment again. Bandits are collecting just evidence things and commenting on how they don't think that Constanta was killed in her home. But it does look like she left quickly because she didn't even finish that tea that she had been making and drinking when they were there. Now we're at the restaurant where Constanta worked. So Jeffries is speaking to one of her coworkers, who she's clearly close with because she knows this story. But this woman doesn't seem bothered at all. No, she, it, it's almost like no one's died. I Maybe they didn't tell her because she's the way this woman is like setting the table. She's kind of floating around. She's very pretty. Um, she's like easy, beasy, beautiful cover girl, just like setting the tables and like talking to them as though her friend and co-worker wasn't murdered and found in a rug off the Harry Hudson and almost taken home to a fisherman's house. This woman, they don't give her a name, but this um, waitress explains that Constanta and Elena had a big fight three years ago about how Elena arrived in New York. So Constanta was saving up money to bring Elena over to New York to go to NYU for school, but it was going to take her another year or more, I guess, to save money, to save enough money. So out of the blue in 1997, Elena shows up in New York and tells Constanta that she met an American businessman at a discotheque. I know. Discotheques, that word is just so European because I'm always like, a what? Yeah, they met at DeClurb, and so she was talking to him at DeClurb, and she told him of her plans, and so he apparently offered to pay for her to get to America, and she agreed. So Jeffrey says, uh, I assume there was a catch, and the woman goes, so did Constanta. But Elena insisted that he was just a nice man, and that he used frequent flyer points, and so it didn't cost him anything, uh, and that he knew of a part-time job she could take while she was in school. Yeah. Uh-huh. Ladies, men are never just being nice. They are literally never just being Mm-mm. nice. Even when they're just being, quote, nice to you at a bar. I mean, they still want to have sex with you. So they're not yeah. really being nice. They're being nice because they want to have sex with you. If they decide yeah. they like you after that. Mm. The woman doesn't know. This woman doesn't know the businessman's name. And she says that after the argument, Constanta did try to find Elena. Uh, and she contacted the man who bought the ticket for Elena herself. But he said he never ended up hearing from Elena. She tried calling that man back a few more times, but I guess nothing is what this woman said. So Constanta gave up. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. We're now at Dr. Jackson's meeting with Olivia. So Olivia seems to have come into this determined to just like put her best foot forward and just kind of go along with this. And Audrey asks Olivia why she requested to be an SVU. And Olivia's like, well, and she tells her the whole story about her mother and what happened to her. And Dr. Jackson's like, okay, well, how does this affect your work? And Olivia takes us all the way back to episode one. She's like, yeah, I really got my ass in a sling over it. Like, that's a phrase people say. I know. So Dr. Jackson asks if if it affects her ability to remain objective. And Olivia says no. And then Dr. Jackson brings up when Olivia shot up Gina Silver's shitbag husband. 
I mean, and Olivia's defensive. She's like, okay, well, Stabler was about to be shot, and that's what I was trained to do. I'm kind of like, my partner was about to be shot. It was a re, <laughs> it was a reflex. That's what we're trained to do. And then Jackson's like, okay. So then she tries a different tact, which I think this is a very normal question. She's like, okay, well, what would you be if you couldn't be a sex crimes detective? And Olivia does that thing that I think we've all done where we're, we immediately feel big feelings and we're surprised and we start to cry and we, we don't know that that's going to happen. So we're like, I, I had a different, I was like, she couldn't, th- surely you could think of at least one other thing. Most people have like a job that they would do because it sounds fun, like a florist or like, you know, I would run a bar if it wasn't like probably the hardest fucking thing you could do. Right. She like, yeah, she like bites her lip and thinks that she gets like teary like her eyes, eyes well, up. well up and dr jackson looks like so like oh my god i'm sorry yeah. she sees her crying. she's like oh shit oh sorry <laughs> dun, dun. Dun, dun. their labs question mark <laughs> <laughs> yeah the csu lab i wrote a csu lady tells bns that the rug constanta was found in was actually super expensive it was like 5k so they know that the killer is rich and then Benson goes, Orion's a carpet store. You know, she's trying to regain some version of semblance. She's like, ha, 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 ha,
Yes, she is. She yes. is Jasmine. She's Teresha's Burgess Jasmine. That's what, because I, yes. I looked at it and I was like, oh, she's been in Law & Order SVU before. And then I almost clicked on it, but then I was like, eh, it's probably later because I didn't recognize the name. She was Jasmine. Yeah. Yes. And that random, she, so she got to basically play a dead body and now she gets a part. Well, done, done. Now we're in the brownstone. Benson's asking where the Moros are and Elena says that they're at work and dinner has to be ready before they get home. So is there anything else? And Benson goes, yeah, there's a hell of a lot more. <laughs> She's oh, wow. on one this episode. So she walks up closer to Elena and she lowers her voice. The little girl can't hear. And she says, your aunt was murdered an hour after we informed her you were in trouble. And Elena says she doesn't know what they're talking about, probably because she thinks that Olivia is talking about like a bug. She goes, I don't have any aunts. I have an aunt. <laughs> is she I dead? I have an aunt. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't talked to that bitch in three years. Yeah. So she's saying she starts setting the table and she's like, you know, she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I have to call out the Moros for having the ugliest table decor detective porters here. They have the ugliest table decorations and they look like white hollow gourds or something. That whole house. Fucking hideous. It's tacky and I hate it. So Stabler is like, look, either way, we know that your aunt came here and talked to you. And Elena says, very deadpan, that she hasn't seen her aunt in three years. So then she tells them that Mr. Morrow doesn't like dinner to be late and implores them to leave. She's like, please. You know, but she's still, she's, she's being firm with them. She's not panicking. She looks nervous, but I think it's less so. It's kind of more like she just doesn't want them to like, you know, fuck up the routine they have here. So then they're, as they're leaving, she has the door open for them. They're leaving. and. Just before she shuts the door on them, Benson asks why she didn't start NYU three years ago as planned. So then Elena just like stares at them and shuts the door. Dun dun. dun Back dun. to the squad room. So Olivia tells the squad how fucking weird Elena was and how the only time she seemed to get upset at all was at the thought of dinner being late. So from across the bullpen, poor Dr. Jackson, who I think was told she can't sit with us, is like, uh, Stockholm Syndrome. And they all turn and stare at her. Now, maybe people didn't know what Stockholm Syndrome was back then, but everyone goes on a little rant to educate. Munch is like, aha, yes, Stockholm Syndrome. And I once again, like, run across the squad room and tackle him because I don't want to fucking talk about it. Everyone knows what Stockholm Syndrome is. It's weird that they're, they have to explain it because obviously because we're the audience and we might not know, but it's so weird to watch cops who deal with hostage situations. Go, aha, yes, Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome. Dr. Jackson gets into it, but she's basically like, brainwashing is wicked easy. Good to know. I know. I was like taking notes and she was like, be really mean and then be nice to them. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Hey, that's how I get all my boyfriends. And uh, I talk to all my exes. <laughs> so I'm an expert. Craig tells BNS they need to go find out what is happening in the house. It's like now he's like, now I believe it. This I don't was know. my idea the whole time. We really need to go figure this out. And that's what I said from the beginning. That was me. <laughs> me. <laughs> you know me. Dun dun. Nice interrogation room. Munch's turn. We enter in on Jackson asking Munch, do you have a girlfriend? And he goes, do you? And Jackson asks if Munch has dated at all since transferring to the unit. I'm like, he sure has tried. He definitely has. So Munch says, ah, I see where you're going with this. Does dealing with sexual deviance every day affect my dating life? No, just ask my blow up doll. Waka, 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 waka. I know. He's like, so he goes on to say that he had issues with dating even before SVU and mentions his stubbornness and melancholy. So he says that he was a lousy date, but a good cop. 
He keeps joking around with Jackson and she's like having fun with it, but she's trying to keep them on track. And so she goes, do you always deflect personal questions with jokes? And he goes, do you always deflect jokes with personal questions? And I'm like, man, zing, zing. He's like, I was actually very much enjoying this. I know. <laughs> I mean, what the funny thing is Richard Belter was a stand up comedian. So I was like, meh. It was no fun. This is funny. Because like, I feel like they they try to do this with him, obviously, in moments where it wasn't like appropriate. Oh, yeah. He's handling it the best for having the weirdest question thrown at him, being like, do you date? Uh, so he keeps joking around and she's like, uh, basically. And he's like, sorry. And he, he gets, he's really nice. He goes, listen, I'm really bad at talking about me. So why don't you talk about me? She goes, sure. And she reads off a bunch of things that once again, I am not sure how she knows or has the privilege to know. She says, you've been married multiple times and that each of his wives was beautiful, spoiled, and didn't match you intellectually. You distrust all women, any form of government, and you could spell a conspiracy theory at a five-year-old's lemonade stand. But he's usually wrong, so that's kind of... I know. Like, and, and also, how do you know that? How do you know his wives were stupid and spoiled? She's like watching him for years. She's like, stupid and spoiled. Stupid, spoiled wives. He's, he's amused. And he goes, anything else? And she goes, again... You still believe in true love, and the pain of never having found it is unbearable. And so then he goes, anything else? But he's still amused, and you can tell he feels seen. But what in the hell type of evaluation is he getting? No, his somehow seems to go the best. His is like, his went the best, but it was also based on the least amount of, like, merit. I would have had a more of a Cragen reaction if she said all that. Maybe not, but, like, I'd have been like, wait, how do you know about my wives being stupid? You know what I mean? Like, first of all, rude. <laughs> Although he does talk about his wives all the time. I think it's like Cragen where he's like, oh, I'm an alcoholic. Munch is like, I've been divorced five times. Ah, I've been divorced from several stupid women. And it's just like, what? And, but I love how she throws it at the end, a very intense like kind of like read of him. She's like, you still believe in true love, but the pain of never having found it is unbearable. It's like, are you hitting on me, Dr. Jackson? Tell me something good. <laughs> so that's the end of the scene. Dun dun. Dun dun. On the streets. So B and S are talking to what we can assume, I guess, are neighbors that are a couple. It's like a man and a woman. She's wearing a beret. He's walking a dog. And they are apparently know all this like random shit about the Maros. They're like, well, yeah, they're good neighbors, good parents. And they ask if Elena has ever talked about the Maros. And they're like, We've never really had a conversation with her. And she's like, oh, well, that sounds awful. She's been here a year. And Olivia and Elliot are like, she's been here just a year? And the neighbor says, yes. And Stabler's like, well, we've heard she's been there three years. And the male neighbor says, no, 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 just one. So Olivia asks what they know about the Moros. And I'm like, wasn't that the first thing you asked them? Yeah. So the male neighbor bends down to pick up dog poop randomly. And he's like, well, the wife is a veterinarian. And Mr. Morrow is some sort of investment banker or something. So, dun dun, we are now at Randolph Morrow's office. And we enter in on a shot of him. Again, legendary 80s hottie Andrew McCarthy, everyone. I realize when I edit these, I cringe when I try to, like, imitate the actor. So I'm going to try to do a little bit less of that. Um, but his demeanor, if you've seen him act, you kind of get the gist of it. But he's very, like overly assertive kind of like spastic with his confidence like he's trying to be controlling but it's like slimy and creepy it's not like effective it's sort of like a guy like he does things like go no no wait 
a lady never lights her own cigarette and he like won't let you light your own cigarette. So I like him, but I find his portrayal very cartoonish. He's a very cartoonish villain. Like, haha, he should have like a top hat and like squig, like slanty black eyebrows. Like, ha ha You believe that he's the type of guy who would pull some shit like he pulls. Uh, we enter on him just sitting at his desk and then the door opens. So we hear the door open and then he just very vigorously goes, sit. And he like stands up and greets its BNS. So Elliot sits on the couch kind of at the back of the office and then Benton sits on the chair right next to the door. So then Moro like looks at her sitting in the chair and he goes, oh, the couch is more comfortable, hinting that she should move. And she goes, oh, I'm fine. And he just visibly does not like this. He like stares at her kind of he like. He kind of rolls his eyes. He's really funny with his nonverbal, like his faces in this episode are so like extreme. He puckers his lips a lot. You know what? You're right. Maybe he was like just having fun with this character and he was like, whatever, I'm going to be as obnoxious as I can be. <laughs> and he's very obnoxious. It's pretty funny. So then he says that it's terrible to hear about what happened to Elena's aunt and that he didn't even know she actually had one. And so Sabre's like, so you never met her? And she's like, nope. Sabre asks how he met Elena. And he says that he was in Romania on a business trip. He said Elena wanted to come to the States and we need a nanny. If only all mergers could be that easy. You're so creepy. Can you imagine meeting him at a discotheque? He would have been that guy like dancing really intensely, but like staring at you. Staring at you. Yeah, like with his teeth gritted, being like, hey, how are you? I'm Randolph. I'm an investment banker from New York City. Bet you've never been to New York City, huh? <sighs> oh, and he's, he's probably like sniffing a lot because I assume he did a lot of cocaine at this Romanian discotheque. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. He's like sweating. <sighs> I love mergers. <sighs> so Benson asks if Elena had been working for them for three years and Moro says, yeah, I guess it has been. Listen, that chair is really so stiff. Just then, his assistant walks in and places some papers or whatever on the desk. She's taking a while to do it, too. She's, like, sitting there, like, papers. But she has a pixie cut. And I would like to think that this is Olivia's second and final motivation to get her season two pixie cut. She's, she's like, shit, that looks really good. So Benson says that the neighbors were sure that they'd seen Elena only over the past year. And Randolph responds that this is New York and he couldn't tell you anything about any of his neighbors. So Benson says, and she's kind of got a tone. She's, like, got a little bit of a... It's sort of like condescending. She goes, well, they're very observant and they're positive that they've only seen Elena in the past year or so. He clearly doesn't like it. So he kind of pauses and he makes one of his duck faces. So instead of responding to Olivia, like he like kind of leans over to the assistant and goes, Louise, what did I say about the blinds? And so then Louise's dumbass goes, you like them drawn halfway in the afternoon. And he was like, and what time is it now? And she realizes she forgot to do it. She's like, oh, it's 3 p.m. And he's like, hmm. I'm like, Louise, do you not know what the afternoon is? So then as she goes to do that, he goes, he like claps. He goes, I have an afternoon full of meetings. Is there anything else? Stabler asks where he was on Monday between 4 and 6 p.m. And he confirms that he was in negotiations with corporate lawyers. That was such a sentence. Um, I was in negotiations with four corporate lawyers. Four. He basically tells him to leave. He like kind of holds the door for them. So on the way out, Benson goes, oh, um, there's something uh, right here. And then she pulls a hair off of him. Outside, Stabler compliments that smooth move hair grab, and she says that she's going to use it to compare to the one that they found on the rug at the lab. I'm like, that would never hold up in court. I know. His lawyer would be like, she claims she picked that hair off of him, but we have no idea. So, of course, Stabler gets a call right then from the lab, and he says that uh, they found out that Constanta was killed with euthanasia. No, no. They call this drug euthanasia, and it infuriates me. They don't just call it euthanasia? No, they're calling it euthanasia. It may be 
furious. I do not. I'm sorry. We have never disagreed, but I do not believe you. I think you are mishearing euthanasia. <laughs> They're calling it euthanasia. Well, the real drug is called like phenobarbital or something like that. But then wouldn't they just be referencing it? We gave that to my dog for her seizure. <laughs> phenobarbital is an euthanasia drug and it's a seizure medication. Oh, Christ. That makes me upset. It's like a Yanni Laurel thing. I'm like, no way they were calling it euthanasia. I euthanasia. I didn't realize it. Oh, it was making me so mad every time they did it. I was like, shut the fuck up about the euthanasia. Uh, so done, done. We're at the Morrow Clinic. So B and S are talking to Mrs. Morrow. Wouldn't it be Doctor Morrow? <laughs> I, Do we have no respect for female doctors in this show? Or I guess vets, because you know how sometimes people won't call dentist doctors. They'll be like, you're a dentist, and it's like, you got a doctorate in it. Also, they don't give her a real name. Her name is just Mrs. No. Morrow on IMDb. I know. She's played by Susan Floyd, who looks so familiar, but has been in nothing. Nothing. She I'm was in Oz, like everyone oh. else. I thought she was good in this role because she acted like she was like a really good white wine zombie mom. But um, also, she kind of acted like that. Once I realized, I was, like, I was like, oh, yeah, she played Beecher's wife in that one episode. She kind of acted like that in that episode, too. She's fucked up on ketamine. <laughs> so... Dr. Morrow is holding a spaniel, and this is one of those interviews where the person being questioned cannot take a second to pause what they're doing. They need to work frantically while the police try to question them. So they're following her, but not frantically. She's slow. She's slow, and like she's basically Miriam Pataki, Helga Pataki's mom. <sighs> so Olivia says she understands she works Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, but where was she last Monday? So Mrs. Morrow. Dr. Morrow, carries the dog to an examination table and says, home. Stabler asks if Elena had any visitors that day, and she says no. And then Olivia asks if Mr. Morrow came home, and she also says no, and she calls her vet tech Barry over. She keeps saying Barry. She's always like, Barry? 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 Barry, can you? So Stabler asks how things are working with Elena, and she says, it works. She has barely looked at them this whole time. She's like, well, we have a whole routine, but my husband could explain it better. So she then gets some pills. She can't get the pill cap up. She's like trying to open it. Barely can hold it. Barely can get the top off. You should ask my husband. And then when she has the pills, she's walking over to them. She drops the pill and goes, oh, dropped it. And everyone, including Barry, are staring at her like. And then she gives a pill to the dog. And I was like, at that point, I think she just shouldn't. She's got her hand over the dog's mouth when they ask her another question. Uh, was Randolph close to Elena. And so she pauses with her hand over the dog's mouth. And she's like, you should talk to my husband. So then another vet tech pokes his head in. And he's like, uh, we need you. There's been a hit and run. And she goes, oh. Talk tomorrow. We have a hit and run. Oh. Barry? They do not seem as properly put off by her as they should be. <laughs> There's... A hundred percent something up with her. They were like talking so much shit about Elena not having any response about her aunt dying. And meanwhile, this woman's like, hmm, drop the pills. Oh, oh. there's been a hit and run. Oh, Ooh. my husband selected her. They're like, huh, huh. So Stabler tells Barry they have a nice facility. And he's like, yeah, well, we have our own OR. We have our own recovery room. And Olivia's like, a pharmacy. And he's like, yes. Olivia's like, oh, is it computerized so the DEA can monitor? And he's like, well, we aren't as closely monitored as like a pharmacy for humans. That's not what he says, but essentially what he says. So Stabler's like, what about the vets? And Barry is immediately uncomfortable. And he's like, 
I've got to go do a rectal. Look, I, I really have to do a rectal, so. Sure. Yeah, these vets have no chill. <laughs> so they're like, all right, sure, no problem. And Stabler gives him his card. Okay, so Barry, the actor who plays Barry, he is the cop in Changeling who finds the kid oh, from Canada. Kelly? Yeah. The one, you know, the one that when he, they're like, go investigate this, like, alien from Canada on this farm. And then he goes oh, like, oh, God, I have to go all the way up to Wineville. And then he goes and then he drives past the guy and he's like, is there a farm up here? And the guy's like, uh-huh, yeah. And then he goes up and he finds the kid in the closet. That's this guy. Oh, my God. And he's been in everything. So I just recognized him from his role in everything. I did not. Oh, my God. He was really good in that movie, too. Like, for what that movie was, a traumatizing experience. A uh, horrible movie. I will never forget him, because he was a huge part yeah. of it. I was like, wow. So many... What is this, like, our fifth... Our fourth or third? It's like our, it's like our fourth or third changeling, because we had Dennis O'Hare. There's been a lot, because we keep there's flagging it. There's been at least... Yeah, there's, there's been at uh, least three. But Barry! Barry! Barry, can you... You ruined my life. You didn't mean to, but you did. Dun-dun. Dun, dun. Ugh, it's Monique's turn. Oh, boy. All right. I just want to preface this, guys, by saying that Monique is a Sagittarius woman. And we are a bit prone to oversharing. And that is a lot of what this is. It's a lot of oversharing that could have been avoided. Jackson is in the nice interrogation room with Monique. Jackson says that she sees in Jeffrey's files that she was recently injured in the line of duty. So Jeffries confirms this and tells her about the explosion from Remorse, uh, you know, when she was chasing, I forget the guy's name, but she was chasing the guy who attacked Mark. Sarah. Mark. Oh, Mark Krieger. Oh, yeah. she, when she was chasing Mark Krieger and the, the car blew up. <laughs> Brittany brought up an interesting point off camera, off camera, off recording, that it seems like they gave Monique interesting plot lines, but then they just cut them out of the script. Because that should have been a bigger deal in the moment, and they very much glossed over it. So Jackson says... So you're just a few feet from going with him. And Jeffrey's very proudly nods and smiles. Jackson mentions how near-death experiences can often cause anxiety in cops and make them more hesitant moving forward to, like, perform their duty or even pull out their rifle. Monique goes, nope, not me. She says that she's had no negative side effects at all. She says that, in fact, she feels more alive than ever because she always knew something like that could happen. But now that it has and she survived it, she feels invigorated, like having three shots of espresso without the jitters. It's funny because she starts out sounding cool as a cucumber, but she's slowly kind of ramping up. What are you talking about? You sound jittery. Especially without the jitters. Yeah, it's like, especially without the jitters. It's like, uh, she said jittery. She's like Tammy, Jamie Taco spitting out all the lines. Clear. And uh, without all the jitters. So Jackson asks if Jeffries is in a relationship, and Jeffries says that she was sort of in a serious relationship when she joined SVU, but it ended very shortly. we've never heard about. We have literally never heard about. And again, I'm like, are all you people like two weeks new on this? Like, they're all new. It's like a new squad. Cragen was like, oh, my top detectives. I'm like, top of what? Apparently they're all new here. And he's been calling them that from the beginning, when I'm pretty sure they started... The whole squad, like, a day before they filmed Payback. Right. Like, last episode, Cragen was chiding Munch for being like, oh, you retired, and then two days later, you were on SVU. Like, how fucking long have you all been here? (laughs) She says that she's been celibate, essentially, uh, up until, um, uh, oh, actually, up until the accident. She realizes this as she's talking. So then Jackson gets a little excited and goes, you have a man? And I'm like, are you guys girlfriends now? You're just, like, talking at this point? Ooh, you got a man? So I'm defending this one. Jeffries goes, well, no, not a man, different men. 
Yeah, she's just playing the field. Yeah, she feels kind of restless. And I'm like, this is Sag behavior. If you read any horoscope, it says that we have issues with commitment and we'd like to sleep around. It does. But Dr. Jackson isn't judgmental. She just goes, oh, you're dating again. So then Monique kind of goes, she's like, yeah. Uh, uh. And then Jackson goes, no, go on. You were about to say something. Jeffrey's like, no, it's nothing. And Jackson's like, no, come on. And she's like giddy. I'm like, my God, it's like she's getting tea at this point. Jackson's finally having fun. Although she's like, okay, Monique's a little weird, but like, she's kind of fun. Let's hear about it, girl. Like, tell me what happened. Tell us. So then Jeffries goes, I cannot claim her for this. Jeffries goes, oh, nothing. Just a few nights ago, I was at a bar. And then she goes on to say that there was this man at the bar and he was staring at her, trying to catch her eye, you know, as as they're wont to do at a bar. So then Jackson (laughs) goes, so? And Jeffries goes, so we started dancing. And she says that she thought she knew the guy from somewhere. He seemed familiar. And then when they got out on the street and she saw him in the streetlight, she said, she realized it was a guy that she had been, quote, watching from a year earlier. And they liked him on a suspect on a case from that year. Jackson goes, oh, so what did you do? And Jeffries kind of laughs in disbelief. At <laughs> in dis- She kind of goes, I went home with him. With her Full chest. Proudly. All she had to do was say nothing. Change the story in the middle of it. I get it. Sometimes I will do this too. Sometimes if I feel like I've done something bad, I'll confess to somebody. You know, like if I go, oh my God, I can't believe I like, you know, did that last night when I was out at happy hour. I might tell you because you want to get it off your chest. But in this case, all she had to say was nothing at all. And she said that outside. We, we don't even get to see Jackson's reaction to that. I'm sure it was something like, bitch. Bro. In the moment, she seemed pretty confident about telling this really bad story. But outside, she's walking through the bullpen and she goes past Munch and she looks very nervous, kind of. She looks a little bit like she said too much, perhaps, because she fucking did. <laughs> so Munch asks if she's OK and she says, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm OK. But right then, Barry walks in. Barry, Barry, can you? <laughs> and Barry asks for Elliot and Liv. So done, done. So BNS have Barry in the nice interrogation room. And Stabler's like, so Barry, were the records fudged? Um, and yes, they were. I guess Dr. Morrow did take the eutha bluthanasia a few months ago. And he couldn't figure out why it's lethal. He's like, There's, it's bright pink. There's no mistaking it. He says that it's normal for vets to take things like ketamine and Valium because they have a stressful job. He goes, that's not that weird. But euthanasia is a totally different story. I know. I'm like, well, that's, that's illegal, Barry. And why did she take it a few months? I mean, I, we never find out. But I'm like, God, I have so many more questions. Dun, dun. Mean interrogation room. Dr. Morrow's here with BNS and they ask her about the euthanasia. I wrote here, it makes me mad every time I have to type this word. She's like, oh, it was for me. And she looks a little out of it. We find out what it is later, but I'm like, this lady is mixing Xanax and white wine before she goes anywhere. Olivia, who's on her shit, she's like, is it because your husband was having sex with Elena right under your nose? She loves calling out the marrieds. She does. She hates married people. She hates the marrieds. I understand, Olivia, they act better than us a lot of the times. But you don't need to like, she really comes hard for the marrieds. She's just like, is it because your wife was cheating on you? It's because your husband was fucking someone else? You don't see your wife very much. Dr. Morrow goes... Sexuality is about reaching our limits and transcending them. Ma'am. No. No, they're not. No. No. 
and BNS exchange a proper what the fuck look. So Stabler asks if her husband transcended Elena's aunt. And I was like, I know she was talking about sexy time. And you just kind of took the word and you're like, yeah, <laughs> did she transcend Elena's aunt? Yeah. So she confronted him and then she killed her. And Miss Morrill's like, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the one time she was actually kind of like had clarity. She was like, no, no. Oh, what? But then she gets angry and she's like, that woman showed up at our door, threatened him, threatened our routine. I knew what I had to do. And Stabler's like, you're really weird. What was that? She's like, I calmed her down. I gave her tea. She kind of smiles. Yeah, she does. So creepy. So Stabler has to clarify. He's like, you drugged her with euthanasia as a chaser? You bluthanized her? You bluthanized her? (laughs) Mrs. Morrow goes, it's like putting an animal down. You just have to disassociate. Ew. Don't touch any Um, more animals. Don't. I'm so scared. I bet she like creepy pets the dogs too. Like I bet she's like like too hard. She pats them too hard. The cats are always like, fuck, stop. So Stabler leans in and presses her again on whether Mr. Morrow made her do it. And she's like, he didn't make me do anything. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. So that's enough for them, I guess. Uh, that's sort of a confession. Well, it is, I guess, a confession. <laughs> she was like, I gave her I made tea. her tea. He didn't have to do anything. <laughs> so they bust into the Morrow Brownstone and Stabler remarks when they upon entering upon the bust they remark that they smell something so they run upstairs and they find Randolph in like an office type room and he's burning the photos in a fireplace Stabler grabs him and handcuffs him to a chair as Olivia is trying to take the pictures out of the fire thank god they got there like pretty much just as he was doing it because they're like basically perfectly intact so Randolph says that they have no right to be there his eyes are bugging out of his head during this scene. Stabler goes, exigent circumstances. You'll ask your lawyer about it later. And so I wrote that down. Um, it's an emergency situation requiring swift action to prevent imminent danger to life or serious damage to property or forestall the imminent escape of a suspect and the destruction of evidence. And I'm like, there are so many times they could have yelled this and gotten things done. And they were like, we don't feel like it. Not today. I guess because they need the warrant, because they do say this. So Stabler is looking at the pictures that Olivia got out of the fire, and he says that they'll need a warrant for that. And then he turns to Randolph, and he gets in his face, of course. And he demands to know where Elena is. So Randolph smiles. I love Andrew McCarthy. He manages to smile while also making his lips, like, duck lip. And like, how are you doing this? You're magical. So he goes, she's gone. Not coming back. And he smirks as they run out of the room, and Olivia shoulder checks him on her way out. <laughs> <It> <laughs> I was- totally missed that. So they start going off into different rooms in the house. They're calling for Elena. They're opening cabinets and checking under the beds. There's like 50 beds. So Stabler goes into a bathroom. He opens the closet and then there's just this other big plywood door that was clearly put there after the closet was built. So they pry that little, that big closet thing open. And inside there's like these BDSM torture looking devices, including a metal head cage, chains, buckles. And Benson and Stabler give each other... A full on because they often give each other what WTF looks this time they're they've, they're like mouth open like done done mean interrogation room. So Olivia is lo- using her close talk technique on Morrow. She is up in this guy's face. So he tells her he'd like a mineral water, honey. And Olivia's like, I'd like your balls in a blender, but ain't life a bitch. Olivia. <laughs> 
she says it in his face and he kind of puts his hand up like mm. ass in a sling balls in a blender Marl's like, you know, I said you guys could be in here, but I think I kind of want quiet time. You guys are annoying. So Olivia kind of says in a sultry voice, she's like, I've got some typing to catch up on and leaves. I thought she was kidding. But I thought she was kidding, that. too. <laughs> so Stabler gets up and talks like he's stretching. He's like, Ugh, maybe I shouldn't have called her, honey. It's time for Stabler to do his man act. He like comes over to Morrow and Morrow's like, yeah, I recommend the rack. So Stabler now kind of close talks him, but I guess in a friendly way, he's like, hmm, sounds painful. Yeah, he is being he's like being friendly, but he's obviously trying to be intimidating a little bit with his body language because he's like legs open in front of him, like close to splayed face, (laughs) face like in his face. And he's like, women, huh? I should actually call this his women, huh, act. He does it when they, like, get a suspect who hates women and Olivia, like, winds him up and then leaves and then he's like, ugh, yeah. Gotta put her in her place sometime, right? So while they're having this little man conversation, it seems like he might be getting somewhere with Mara or at least building a rapport. But too late, Cragen walks in with Mara's attorney and the lawyer is all pissy. Stabler's talking to him. Mara's like, it's all right. We were just discussing our common interests of hating women and he pats stabler on the shoulder and leaves that was so aggressive he's like better luck next time and craig and craig has been such a debbie a debbie downer this entire episode because he's like more bad news the hair sample pulled from the rug isn't his it's the wife's so stabler speed walks into the bullpen to find olivia actually typing in a typewriter yeah, and she's I'm like, literally typing oh. i was like oh my god i thought you were kidding so he's like, we need a warrant now. So he tells Olivia that Elena is still alive based on some sort of based on some sort of tense Morrow used when they were talking. He said that um, in order to use the rack, you have to have a consensual partner. And he says, like it is with Elena. Yes, is instead of was. So yeah. Stabler's like, she's alive. Let's go. Dun dun. Hospital. <laughs> now, were we given any wa- warning that this was happening? No. <laughs> Okay, I was like, oh, did they get a call about? Uh, nope, we're here. Nope, no, it's what it was. Yeah, that, I had to go back a couple times because I was like, was I not paying attention? But no, we're just here now. Um, So because we are not given any context, I'll give you some like we were not afforded the right. <laughs> Apparently, I can't tell if Mrs. Morrow tried to kill herself with ketamine or if she is withdrawing from ketamine. But she is in the hospital for what appears to be a massive ketamine addiction of some kind. Which explains a lot. Yes, she is in a literal K-hole at all times. And the nurse that's telling Benson and Elliot this says that she's <laughs> apparently a heavy and longtime user. Um, so they walk in. I like to believe that she ran out of ketamine. And so she like went to, yeah, went to the hospital. She's like, I'm, I'm out. I'm going to I'm going to be having a problem. I'm going to need I'm going to need to lay down. I'm out of ketamine. Uh, so they walk in and she will not make eye contact with them. She's just like got her head turned to the side. She's like, I already told you everything. They say that they're they're like, we're not coming here to talk about your crime. We're here to talk to you about your husband's. And she says, my husband didn't do anything. Olivia's like, he raped and tortured that girl. And Mrs. Morrow says he disciplined her. He helped her learn. Learn what? So Benson says, did you know that Elena's missing now? And Mrs. Morrow looks at them finally and she looks like kind of nerved up by that. And Benson says, yeah, think about it. You're gone. Elena's missing. Randolph's got to put someone in that closet. Mrs. Morrow's like, he wouldn't do that. She's his daughter. And we didn't know this, but Olivia goes, adopted daughter. 
And so then Miss Morrow starts to sob at that point at the very, I guess, idea of it. And Mrs. Morrow says that when she first started dating Randolph, he was really nice, of course. And then he started asking her to do things in bed and then eventually, of course, started full-blown abusing her. She said she couldn't take it anymore. And so when Randolph suggested that they kidnap Elena after meeting her in Romania, she agreed. She was like, he said it was the perfect plan. No one knows her in America. No one even knows she was gone or that she was missing. You have no idea what I went through. Stabler says that's obviously why you didn't help Elena, but you're going to help us. And then Mrs. Morrow starts to cry again. Dun dun. Mean interrogation room, obviously. And it's a pretty interesting shot. We are shown Morrow in a chair from behind and directly in front of him, there's the window and then on either side. So they're appearing over his shoulders are Stabler and Munch. I'm guessing they figured they need like all male energy on this guy, like female energy's no good. Emasculate this man because he's a control freak. Oh yeah. They're like leering over him. And they're like, your wife rolled on you. And Munch is like, ugh, that hurts. And she was your number one submissive. And Morrow's very confident. He's like, she'll never testify against me. And Stabler's like, yes, she will. You don't control her now. And he's like, she doesn't even blink without my permission. Stabler starts close talking him because it's that time of the episode. And he's like, she blinked. And Munch is like, oh, okay, I like this. So Munch comes in and close talks him too in this little close talking party. And they're kind of doing, I don't know, they're, they're copying a little bit of Craig in too because they're like grabbing at his face and kind of like, like slip slapping him around. It's very, uh, they're just trying to like bully him kind of. Like they're sort of being like, ha ha, you abused your wife too much and she told us everything. We're going to slap your face. Yeah, we control your wife now. She blinked. But it works. Yeah, it works because he freaks it out. It fucking works. Oh, yeah. He's like, I control Elena. She doesn't eat, sleep, or urinate without my permission. I control her. I do. And Stabler's like, you like beating up women? And I sensed danger for a minute. I was like, uh-oh. Is, oh, he yeah. about to, is he about to do some police brutality? So Stabler tells him to stand up. Morrow stands up. Then he tells him to sit down. Morrow sits down. Sit down. They do this a couple times. It's so, it's so funny. <laughs> Stand up. Sit down. And Stabler leans in. He's like, who controls who now? I don't know. It's a very Stabler scene. Andrew McCarthy's faces are so, every time he stands up and sits down, he's got a new face on. He's making like a purse face, like an ooh face, and then like a mad face. Stabler laughs at him and Munch starts mocking him again. They're saying that he's scared of them and they forced moves out of him. So Randolph goes, you've never forced a move out of me. And Stabler goes, we forced you to move Elena, didn't we? So at this point, Randolph kind of smiles and sits back in his chair. And then Stabler catches that and he smiles back. So Jeffries and Benson are looking through photos that Randolph tries to destroy. And are trying to identify the locations of each picture, uh, if they were in the house or not. They're all super disturbing. Shots of, they're shots of Elena in various stages of duress and abuse. So one photo showed Elena's back with like huge whip lashes like blood all over yes. her back Ugh, it was like really casual they're like oh my god look at this <laughs> they're, they're like oh no they're like terrible. wow this is really bad um so stabler comes running in again it's it the second time he's come running in he's like so, <laughs> he asks if they're sure that all the photos were taken in the house so benson says yes except for this one that they can't figure out they pull it up and it's kind of cut off on where randall tried to burn it but you can see that there's like elena's in a type of box like a cage type thing so it's like a plywood box but then there's like a six by 12 cutout on the box with a cage like stapled over it super creepy like in the picture the whites of her eyes like or her eyes are like super white 
um, from the light exposure. It's just very creepy. So Monique points out the rug in the corner of the photo, and Benson and Stabler realize immediately that this was the same rug that Constanta was found in. Stabler runs over to his desk to check Mrs. Morrell's confession and says that she pulled the rug from the bedroom after she killed Constanta. So then Benson goes, she's been there the whole time, and she and Elliot run out. And as they're doing that, Monique yells, that's impossible, the cops have been all over that place! Dun dun. So the Morrow's bedroom, BNS are pacing around, like wondering where she could be, and they're calling to her and they're yelling her name. And Olivia even says, please help us find you, Elena. And they hear nothing. But it's kind of a small room, so they realize the only place she logically can be is under the bed. And they lift the mattress up. There's nothing. And then they, I don't know how they figure out to do this, but they just start like ripping apart the footboard of the bed. And that's when they realize like there's a hollow space underneath. And then they both reach under the bed and pull out a fucking box filled with a person. Fucking Elena's in it. She's like kind of like spit up around her mouth. She's like shaking. They pull her out of the box. She's in a t-shirt and underwear. And Stabler's like losing it. He's like calling 911. He's calling for an ambulance. And as Elena's clutching Olivia, she's saying, tell him, tell him I didn't make a noise. She's like begging them to not tell Moro that she that she gave them her location. She's like flipping out and all of a sudden cuts back to Stabler's face and he's just back to despondent Stabler from the last episode. The last time he's been psychologically scarred. Dun dun. Now we're in the nice interrogation room and it's Elliot's turn. So Jackson asks how long a case like this one sticks with Elliot and he says a while. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, She asks how he deals with things like this and he says that he goes home and he hugs his kids and kisses his wife. Jackson asks if he ever discusses it with his family, the cases that is, and he says no. I want to be like, Kathy, you really want to hear about the girl in the box? Jesus. Yeah, I mean. Like, who wants to hear about the white Me. I mean, I'd want to hear about it, but. (laughs) I know, I'm like, wait a minute. I'd be like, what fucked up thing happened at work today? Oh my God. Yeah, no, I would be, but I wouldn't be like, oh, Elliot, like, you don't like. We would not be making out and hooking up while that happened. Jackson asks if the cases that Elliot works on involving children ever have an effect on him, being that he is a father, of course. I said girl, does it ever. Uh, So Elliot hesitates and gets emotional. He asks if Jackson has ever seen a child with no soul. I was like, dead or a ginger? What are you you saying, Elliot? Yeah, like, why would I have ever seen that? He says, I have. Yeah, we thought that was coming next. Thank you. She asks how he handles it, and he says that he thinks a lot about everything. The crime, the victim, and the type of people who do things like this. So then Jackson asks what he thinks about those types of people, you know, the predators, the perpetrators. And Stabler says, I think about how to get away with killing them. I don't think it's that abnormal. I don't either. He's not trying to be, but they're sort of giving him pick me bitch like <laughs> lines. <laughs> sort of like, you ever seen a child with no soul? Because I have. And I was so excited for his session because I thought he'd be like, volcano angry pissy stabler instead we get sad pain olympic i'm the one who's the most affected by these because i'm a father i'm a father (laughs) (laughs) oh the last one of season one the last one oh my gosh don't worry we'll bring it into season two Dun, dun 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 So Dr. Jackson approaches Cragen's door and she's kind of sighing. She must be exhausted from these people. They are a lot. She was only asking them what they do for fun and they told her so much. They're shitting all over her. 
So she knocks and she asks if he has a minute. And he's like, how's your witch hunt going? He's uh, just a little salty from earlier. This Ken is salty. (laughs) And she's like, well, I've seen everybody. He gets up and asks if she has found any bedwetters or, and my apologies, this was 2000, cross-dressers. She laughs and says no. Everyone is just a normal amount of fucked up. And then she pauses and goes, for the most part. She's like, this whole program is to identify officers who are perilously close to a meltdown. Not to punish them, but to protect the public. Craigan is standing by the window of his office, and we can see into the bullpen out of focus. Our, our four detectives are outside palling around. And I sent a clip to you earlier. What on earth are, are they doing? <laughs> As this is happening. It is so, like, <laughs> I like, corny? You know what I mean? Like, they're just, like, palling around. Like, they're literally just, like laughing kind of like <laughs> like like Olivia puts her hand up for no reason she's like ah and then Benson or Stabler just grabs it and like pushes it down and they're all like ah, 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 ah. <laughs> it looks at one point like he's like pretending to give her a nuggie but he's just like waving his hand around her head also it's like they're but it's like they're a bunch of teenagers I'm like oh it is truly ridiculous I well I said to you earlier it almost looks like it's Mariska and Chris interacting yeah instead of Elliot and Olivia, because I know they're they like to goof around and they seem like they have an appropriate appropriate kind of physical relationship in that they kind of like hug or like push each other around. So this is happening kind of out of focus behind Cragen. And he's like, well, you can't be saying you found someone at that stage from my unit. She says she did. And she has to recommend that they be removed from duty immediately. So Cragen kind of stares at her in dismay. And then he looks out to where Benson, Stabler, Munch, and Jeffries are just goofing around and <laughs> laughing in the bullpen. <laughs> oh my God, rape crimes, am I right? Stabler has just been crying like two seconds ago in Dr. Jackson's office, but all's right now. Ha ha ha, having a great time. Cragen turns back to Dr. Jackson and goes, who? Executive producer Dick motherfucking Wolf. Oh my God, we did season one. Bam! As we go on seasons of love, measure your life in love. <laughs> Nothing's gonna stop us now. <laughs> oh my god, we did it! But you're right. Um, <laughs> they were like they had just found a woman being kept in a box. Um, and. They're like, they all just like, they also like fucked up their own evaluations. Like, it was very like, no worries. They are just palling around, just palling around in a way we've never seen them do before, too. I'm like, it was like Saved by the Bell-esque. I was like, what are we? Is this Bayside? We're by the lacas? Like, what's going on? What a cliffhanger. We truly don't know who it'll be. We, we know, but we don't know. We, we, we know. We'll have to mm-hmm. wait. I can't, actually can't wait to address it. It's going to be, because we'll be like, what? Yeah, so let us know what you think, guys. Maybe we'll put a poll up. We'll do like, who do you think gets ousted? Who do you think gets ousted? Is it Elliot? Is it Elliot? Is it Benson? Is it Cragen? And she's just pulling a bait and switch right there. That'd be so funny. Actually, sir, it's you. It's actually you. Cragen's honestly was the most disturbing to me. He fucking, she was like, so what do you do for fun? And he's like, 
Well, you want to talk about my alcoholism. I guess we'll talk about the fact that I want to drink every single night to quell the voices. So, on some sad shit. This is where we keep it real now. Um, Elena's story is, we haven't had a lot of based on true stories this season, and I bet you didn't think it would be this one, but it is. Oh, dear. This is based on a true story. So this is actually a relatively famous true story. Um, it is a story of the abduction and subsequent, like, torture, rape of Colleen Stan, who was kidnapped by a man named Cameron Hooker and held captive in his home in Red Bluff, California for seven years between 1977 and 1984. This was achieved when she was hitchhiking. In 1977, and Hooker stopped and offered her a ride. He was riding along with his wife Janice and their infant daughter. And so Colleen thought, this seems safe. Obviously, it's a family. Honey. Well. Well. We are not going to jump right into season two. We are actually next episode going to just do like a fun recap of season one. Talk about what we liked, what we didn't like. Just a programming note, we are going to be off July 4th and July 11th, so this will come out July 18th, and then we'll jump into season two. I hope you guys are excited. (laughs) Well, thank you so much to everyone who has sat through any of these episodes. Yeah, you know what, actually, yeah, thank you guys so much. I feel like we usually don't, but... Yeah, if you've been a listener from the very beginning, this is super, we're proud. This is like 24 episodes. We've been doing this for five months total. We started re- well, we've been recording for a lot longer, but we've been releasing episodes and recording in tandem for five whole months, which I think is crazy. That is wild. It's a lot of work. All right, well, we will see you in two weeks. Happy 4th, happy beginning of summer, and happy season two. Happy season two. Charge your crystals on the next new moon. Do it. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye.